All right, let me open in prayer for us. Father, I ask that as we look into your word tonight, your spirit would speak to our hearts, God. We're going to be looking in your truth about truth. And I just ask, Father, that, <coughs> that your spirit would speak so clearly to our hearts. Father, I ask tonight, set some people free. Anyone who is bound up, Lord God, by lies, set them free tonight. But Spirit of God, you speak. Spirit of truth, you speak tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you are familiar with a gentleman by the name of Wayne, uh, General Wainwright. General Wainwright was in World War II, and in 1942, as MacArthur, John MacArthur had, um, General MacArthur had left the Philippines, he was left as the commanding general to oversee the Allied troops there. And unfortunately, the Japanese came in with such heavy artillery and such a wave of attack, he had to surrender. He found himself in a Japanese prison camp for three years. At the end of those three years, well, you guys know who won the war, but as soon as they declared victory, his, his prison camp had not known, or at least the prisoners in his prison camp had not known, and it took some days for the word to get to them. All the while, he is no longer a prisoner, but he is still held captive by his thoughts that he is a captive. He's emaciated. He has been, he's been starved. He has been beaten. And he is, when he is at the fence, he hears the news that they had won the war, that the Japanese had surrendered. Under that with that equipped with that truth, he walked into the Japanese commander's office and he said, your, cat, your general has surrendered to my general and I am declaring that this camp is no longer going to hold us prisoner, but we are free. I command you to surrender to my leadership. He walked in there emaciated. He walked in there with no guns. He simply declared the truth, and he became, and he then was set free, and the Japanese surrendered in that camp. You know, church, sometimes we don't know the truth. Sometimes the truth is there, even as Christians, and we don't follow through with it, and we still see ourselves and follow through as if we are prisoners of these lies. What does it really mean to know the truth, church, and be free? I'm going to read something to you. One day, a man named Truth and a man named Lie stood by a river just outside of town. They were twin brothers. Lie challenged Truth to a race, claiming he could swim across the river faster than Truth. Lie laid out the rules of the challenge, stating that they both must remove all of their clothes and at the count of three, dive into the freezing cold water, swim to the other side and back. Lie counted to three, but when Truth jumped in, Lie did not. As Truth swam across the river, Lie put on Truth's clothes and walked back into town as dressed as Truth. He proudly paraded around town pretending to be Truth. Truth made it back to shore, but his clothes were gone, and he was left naked with only Lie's clothes to wear. Refusing to dress himself as Lie, Truth walked back to town naked. People stared and glared at the unclothed Truth, walked as 
the unclothed truth walked through town, he tried to explain what happened and that in fact truth, excuse me, and that he was in fact truth. But because he was naked and uncomfortable to look at, people mocked and shunned him, refusing to believe that he really was truth. The people in town chose to believe lies because he was dressed appropriately and easier to look at. From that day until this, people have come to believe a lie rather than believe a naked truth. How do we recognize and then act on the truth? Jesus has a lot to say about the truth in this passage we're going to look at. John chapter 8, starting with verse 30, we're going to read through verse 47. Before I begin, let's realize, though, that Jesus is still preaching, he's still teaching at the, at the Feast of Tabernacles only about six months before he would die on Passover day. So this is probably around September, late September, early October. He died probably around late March, early April, give or take, in that general, because Passover varies according to our Julian calendar. But Jesus is preaching. Last week, he, we started off and he was declaring, I am the light, and if I am the light of the world. If you refuse to believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And this was his challenge. And then verse 30, it says, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really or truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Church, it doesn't say then you will tell the truth. And by telling the truth, man, will you feel a whole lot better about yourself. It doesn't say that. By knowing that truth, the truth will set you free. They answered him. Now, these are the ones who said that they believed him. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins. There is no exception here. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I think we sang something like that just this evening, huh? I know you are Abraham's descendant. You are ready, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you, what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Hmm, I wonder whose father it is. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do such things. You're doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children. Literally, that is, we are not born of sexual immorality or premarital sex or sex outside of marriage. They protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus 
said to them. So he's continuing this dialogue with them. Interesting within Jewish culture, many times in teaching, it's kind of a dialogue, if you were wondering. It's not like a sermon like we do where, my goodness, please don't interrupt. They would ask questions and the teacher would answer them. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father. Here we go. The devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God, or he who is of God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Wow. I wanted to ask you, did you see a contrast that John purposely sets up between verse 30 and verse 31? I want you to just now look at, your, look at those two verses in your Bibles or your cell phone or whatever you're using to read from. Verse 30 and verse 31. There are those that believe in Jesus, verse 30. But what does verse 31 say? There are those who believed Jesus. Now, for John, that's a big deal. I'm not saying that, we, that they shouldn't believe him. There are many that believed Jesus, and they were truly saved. But for John, the language to believe in Jesus was unmistakably clear. They are now regenerated. They're now born of God. The Spirit birthed them. There is something miraculous that happens in their lives because as they believed in Jesus... God transformed them, and John is big in this, and therefore the Spirit of God comes in them and births, and there's, there's now life in them, rivers of living water now flowing out of them. And so Jesus, or rather John, is, is setting up a contrast here. There are those who unmistakably believed in Jesus. Then Jesus said to those who believed him, some of those who believed him, they kind of believed him, but not necessarily believed in him. And he tells them, to this group, remember, it's the Jews. Those are the enemies. Those are the ones persecuting and opposing Jesus. To those Jews that believed him, now he says, hey, if you hold to my teaching." then you're really my disciples. And at that point, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, I don't know what your translation says. Some may read, um, if you abide in my teaching. Some of, them, some of yours may say, uh, hold to, like the NIV. It may say, if you dwell in my teaching, or it may say, if you continue in, or stay in, or remain in my teaching. 
you are truly my disciple. Let me suggest that this Greek word, meno, and John uses this word meno a lot in his gospel, and a lot in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I don't know about Revelation, to be honest. I didn't check that. But he uses this word meno. Generally, this Greek word means to remain, to continue. There's this sense of permanence. And if you could think of time, then it would, it would be linear, and it would be like an arrow, continuing. But John means something more than this in his gospel. He doesn't just simply want to convey a sense of holding on or a sense of permanence. I want you to listen to just a few passages that John uses. For example, in John 5.38, he says this. You have heard, I'm skipping back to verse 37. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word, that is God's word, meno, dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Is he trying to say that the word does not remain in them? Well, no. For something to remain, then that means it's got to be in them first, and then it continues. It, it endures. Jesus, Jesus is not saying that the word is even in them. It means more than just continuing. It's this sense of abiding presence. And that's why the many, like the King James, excuse me, the NIV says dwell in. King James uses the word abide. Now, it can mean remain, but it can also mean to abide, to dwell in. 1 John 3. Let me read that to you. 1 John 3. 15 and 17. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him or remaining in him. I'm going to suggest dwelling in him. See, a murderer, that is someone whose life is characterized by murder, does not even know the truth. It, th there is no eternal life in them at all. It's not an issue of whether eternal life remains. So, and then verse 17, it says this, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Or how can the love of God remain better dwell in him? I want us to see something in this word because of how important we need how important this word relates to what Jesus is saying here because he says that if you meno if you abide in not just remain in the truth then you'll truly be my disciples Jesus is not trying to say hey if you hang on to the very end then you can conclude and only then can you conclude that you're truly my disciple you would never know if you're saved do you see what I'm saying here if you have to remain in the truth until the very end, and that's when you can, that's when you will truly be his disciple? No. You don't have to have a track record of good works in order to become his disciple. Something happens when a person believes in Jesus, when a person abides in that truth. So we need to understand that when that happens, that's when we truly become 
his disciples. We are truly his disciples. We don't become truly his disciples when we die and we've hung on. No, when you meno, when you abide in the truth, that's when you will know the truth and that's when the truth will set you free. There are, in my profession and what I do as a vendor to dealerships, I do paint work on cars. There are others who do interior work and headliners. There are those who do headlight restoration. There are those who do wheels, alloy wheels. They, they, they shine them up and, and where there's gouges, they fix them. And then there are those that do paintless dent removal or PDR, paintless dent removal. There's two kinds of paintless dent removal. Most of them take up residence in a city or a town. They set up their business and they deal with they, they service dealerships, as many accounts as they can. Others, however, they're what you call hail chasers. Have you ever heard of a storm chaser? If you've ever seen the movie, what is it, um, Twister, those are storm chasers. Those are, those are tornado ch chasers. These are hail chasers. They follow the news report, and especially in the uh, Missouri, Kansas, Texas, that corridor, that's where it tends to hail quite a bit in America. But wherever the hail, hail fa falls, they want to go to those cities because when the hail falls, if it's large enough, it puts numerous dings in the hood, roof, and trunk of a car. Consequently, they will get paid a couple of thousand dollars a day doing this type of work. They will, for one, one car takes them about half a day and they'll get paid $1,500 to $2,000 because it's better than just painting the entire car and they'll remove all of those days. So they make a bunch of money. They work half the year and then they come home. Sometimes they continue to work, but sometimes they don't because they made so much money. Those are called hail chasers. Here's the difference though. One sinks roots down into their city. They take up residence. That's their home. That's where they're staying. They build relationships. They dig deep into the community, so to speak. There's relationships going on. They have good relationships, typically, with the car dealerships that they serve. They are trusted. There's a sense of permanence to what they're doing as they sink their roots down. That is the type of meno that John is, is looking at here. The hail chasers. Those who kind of flit here and there, overnight, gone to the next day, to the next city, the next town, they don't have this sense of permanence. They don't have, it's not as if, I mean, they live out of a suitcase. That is not Menno. That is, however, how many people treat the truth. Oh, I like this truth. I think today I'll believe it. But if things get tough, they discard the truth. And Jesus is saying, I need you to truly sink roots down into this truth. Now, the NIV translates it, hold on. If you want to say grip with all of your might, it's a sense of tenacity, this sense of I'm giving myself to this. Like a marriage, are you committed to the truth? Will you sacrifice for it? Do you choose to settle down or move on? See, meno is not just simply this time of endurance, it is this sense now of digging deep, of holding on, of with all of my heart embracing this truth and therefore living, living for it. Jesus said that if you abide in me as the vine, 
you as a branch will bear much fruit. He's not just simply saying, if you remain in me. No, if you are, if you are connected to me in a life-giving way, instead of living out of a suitcase, you take up residence. This is where you're staying. This is where I'm living. That's manna. That's how the branch is to be connected to the vine. This is how we're to treat the truth. And if we do this, Jesus says, that's when you'll know the truth. You have to grab a hold of it. You have to say, yes, this is what I stand in. This is what I believe. And we grip it with our hearts, so to speak. It's not just verbal, who wants to accept Jesus? I'll accept Jesus in my heart. When I was eight years old, I raised my hand. I had no idea what I was doing. I, they said, hey, you want, you want to get a free ticket to heaven? Raise your hand. And of course I'm going to raise my hand. Sure, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Yeah, I've got heaven in the bag. No, it wasn't until I was 14, six years later, that I realized, my goodness, this is what Jesus is talking. This is what it means to believe in him. This is what it means. I'm going to stand on, I'm going to dwell in the truth. There's no overnight bag. I'm dwelling in the truth. This is, this is my home. Is truth your home? If it is, that is when you, it's like this, yes, this is the truth. I know this truth. And when John uses this word, know the truth, he is talking about this sense of not just grasping it with our minds. You got to do that. But it is this experiential knowledge. It is knowing and experiencing the truth. You've heard me say this. You know what? If it, that theology is not just intellectual, God Formed truth, theology to be experienced. Theology must be experiential. If your theology is not experiential, if it's not practical, then I'm not sure what you truly believe because it's not the truth that I find in my Bible. And you can go through all the truths, all the theology. It is practical. What discourages me is in seminary, they generally uh, separate theology from practical theology. Church, I want to just tell you, all theology is practical. Why? Because we're meant to experience it. We're meant to grasp hold, meno, the truth, know the truth. Now, here's what happens. When you know this truth, it's going to set you free. It's going to set you free. Now, when, they, when, when Jesus says this, his hearers get offended. These are the very ones that said that they believed him. Apparently... They don't anymore. They don't, they don't like this inconvenient truth that they are slaves. Because Jesus then goes on, everyone who sins. See, church, there's no exception. Everyone. Can you say that word with me, church? Everyone. Just one more time, please. Everyone. Everyone means every single one of you, and it includes me. If we sin, we become addicted to that sin. We become slaves to that sin. Now, they object. They say, wait a second. What do you mean the truth sets us free? See, they're thinking freedom, slavery. Okay, they got that right. But then they go on and they say, we've never been slaves of anyone. What? Excuse me. I just got to turn back to the book of Exodus. And then in the book of 2 Kings, in Exodus, they're slaves of Egypt. In 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, they become slaves to Babylon. And on and on, the Greeks over, overrun them. That's where you get the Maccabean revolt. 
<laughs> around 165, 168 BC. And then, hello, are you just kind of doing really well in the Roman Empire at this time? No, you're being taxed out of your mind. What do you mean you're not slaves of anyone? Oh, you just wait until 70 AD in one generation, church, when Rome overthrew Jerusalem and ransacked it, they say 30,000 became slaves. That means forced slavery. That means they were taken away and sold to make money, and they were prisoners in their slavery. But people who don't know the truth, they often deny that they're slaves to sin. You know what? I think sometimes we don't view how we treat truth as we would in marriage, that sense of commitment. And so I've entitled the message, Stop Dating the Truth. You know, I think for, for many of us, like those hail chasers, they, they, they just kind of date the cities. They, they go from one city to the next, one town to the next. People in our day, oh, I'm a Christian, and they hop from truth to truth to truth. What? And Jesus challenges us. No, sink your roots down into it. See, lies can be dressed up. So what then exactly is truth? Because let me just tell you right, if there's anything that can lie real easily, it's statistics. You can make statistics say almost anything you want. Whenever you read a statistic, church, I'm going to just encourage you, don't believe it right off the bat. Whether it's from a reliable source or not, check the footnote, check it out. There's a lot of lies propagated as truth on the internet, okay? Like there was no voter fraud. Anyway, next subject. The truth is that we are called to embrace what is true, what is truly true. All truth that we're able to be, that we are committed to, finds its origin in Jesus. Let me just say that one more time. All truth that we are to be committed to finds its origin in Jesus. Because Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. But the naked truth can sometimes be hard to accept. So they're offended. The first thing they say is, we're Abraham's descendants. And then they say, we've never been slaves of anyone. Well, Jesus, uh, Jesus addresses the second thing first. Then he comes back to them being descendants. So in his, to the point, he says that if you sin, then you become a slave to sin. Now, I'm going to date myself right now. I'm using that differently than the way I used it before. I'm putting a timestamp on my life right now. Lay's chips, you can't eat just one. You ever heard that commercial? Some of us who are old, how many of you people remember that commercial? Come on, please. Wow, some of you younger people too. Wow, okay. Lay's chips, you can't eat just one. Sin, you can't do it just once. Yet one time. No, it's not. Right? Isn't that one of the lies the enemy likes to get in? Oh, it's just this one time. Nope. Mm -mm. 
Jesus then says, who can free you? See, he says, the son can. And there's so much just in that one verse. I'm just going to kind of touch on it. The fact that Jesus, as the son, sets you free, that means that he has bought you. How else can you set a slave free? You've got to purchase them. Even back in Exodus 6, where God is telling Moses, hey, I'm going to be their redeemer from slavery. Redeemer means purchaser. God is going to purchase them. He purchased them by 10 plagues on Egypt. That, That was not a really good deal for the Egyptians. But God purchased them. They were now his. And he told them, he said, look, Moses warned Pharaoh, you have taken my firstborn, referring to Israel. You've taken my firstborn. You've enslaved him. And God will now take your firstborn, tenth plague. God was their redeemer then. Jesus is now our redeemer now. Jesus is the one who by his blood and now his resurrection purchases us. There's a transfer of ownership. We used to belong to the world and even to the devil and the world system. Now we belong to Jesus. He purchased us. See, as a son, he has the right to make that purchase, to now bring you into the family. See, you were a slave, but now you belong to the family. And here's where where, where Jesus goes back to point number one. And he tells them, yes, you are Abraham's descendants. Do you see that verse 37? I know you are Abraham's descendants. He acknowledges this. But then he turns it on their on its head, and he says something rather interesting in verse 39. When they say Abraham their father, they, he says, if you were Abraham's what? Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. And Jesus is purposely setting up a contrast between Abraham's descendants, in the Greek it's seed, but descendants is a fair translation. He's making a contrast between them being Abraham's descendants, but not Abraham's children. See, Abraham is a distant relative. You are, I got to find my notes here now, sorry. You're a distant relative based on race, but not his child based on your character. Let me just say that one more time. You're a distant relative based on race, but not his child based on your character. God the Father didn't birth them and thereby make them his children. Because Jesus can tell their character. They still want to kill him. They're not his child. Oh, so you are a descendant of Abraham, but you are not his children, and you're not part of his family. You are still a slave. So I want to ask you, what types of dressed-up lies can we believe? I'm just going to tell you, this, this is for the unsaved. What types of lies? Think back when you were unconverted. What types of lies did you believe? There's all types of lies that we can believe in order to keep truth at a distance, to not sink our roots down, to not wholeheartedly embrace the truth. We will accept Satan's lies. And lying is Satan's native language. 
Satan doesn't stop his lying just because you're a child of God. Satan doesn't stop his lying just because you are embracing and dwelling in the truth. If he can, he will seek to undermine that. So Satan keeps lying. First, though, to the unsaved. I'll get to the saved in a moment. To the unsaved. What types of lies does he wield and, and craft and spin? Oh, my parents are Christians. So am I. Or therefore, so I am. I believed that growing up. I was born and raised in a Christian home. My dad was a choir director. My goodness. I, had a sh- I was a shoe-in for salvation, guys. Of course. Plus, number two, here's the second lie. I go to church like every week. Come on. Of course I'm a Christian. And I heard my brother tell me when, I was, when he really challenged me with the, the true gospel. He said, Mike, staying in a garage or, or going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a Christian. And it, it was like such a simple, even trite truth, but it hit me between the eyes and I realized, oh my goodness. I really think that by going to church and having parents that are Christians, I'm a Christian. Just because I walked like a Christian and did my best to talk like a Christian didn't make me a Christian. I said a prayer. When I was eight years old and I raised my hand, yeah, but Jesus, I just pray you come into my heart. I receive you, Jesus. Amen. Woo, okay, good to go. Hey, back to my sin. And that's how I treated God. I went to church. I I even put a dime in the offering plate every now and then, church. Man, I was pretty good for a kid anyway. Just as long as you didn't hear my foul mouth when I was out on the playground, right? The truth, though, is I said a prayer. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible says those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, and, And I get that. It's just too often in America... The pastor says, just repeat after me, and you'll be good. Where in the Bible does Peter or anyone present salvation? Just pray this prayer, and you'll be saved. No, it says, call upon his name. That is, we cry out to him. For what? Rescue me, Jesus. I'm lost in my sin. I'm a sin addict. Rescue me. Help me. It's that type of disposition, that type of attitude that surrendered. I can't do this. I need you. Please rescue me out of my sin and wash me clean. And when our heart is set on that, when our heart is like that and we are menowing in the truth, then the truth sets us free. So, you know, I I, I even, as my brother was sharing with me, my very first excuse, I share, I, as I was reading the gospel tract, I said, but Dan, I've, I've done all of these things. There's 17 of them, the 17 being other. And I checked them all off. Though I had no idea what holy unction was. And I, I hope he just didn't ask me. But I, I did all of this. But the truth was, in my mind, I was thinking, see, my good outweighs the bad. If you are ever arrested and brought before a judge, try using that line with the judge. But judge, my good outweighs my bad. But Mike, you're here for murder. But my good outweighs my bad. Don't, don't I get off? Well, of course you don't. 
It's not an issue of how much good you have done. It's an issue of our sin. Our sin is the problem. And Jesus came to break that sin cycle, but we have to menow the truth. We have to embrace and know the truth. And it's not just some casual walk through Central Park. It's not that attitude. It is, I am determined to follow the truth. God must do something in our hearts as it's rebellious. We, his grace must break through and break us. We've got to sink our roots down. We've got to stop dating the truth. We've got to be married to it. We've got to say, I am all in. Just like Meredith was saying, all in. Because if not, then there's no difference. Then we're no different than the Jews that Jesus said would die in their sin. Now, as a believer, what can keep what lies can keep us from really holding firm? And we can be like waves tossed back and forth, as Paul says. And we can be buffeted. What kinds of lies? And and there's there's many of them. And I'm just gonna tell you, I'm just gonna say, I'm just gonna share two of them and, and spend most of my time on the second one. We can say, you know what, God? I'm going to sin, but it's just this one time. Okay. See, we can rationalize and say this, this sin is just like, a, it's, it's a little sin. It's not that big of a deal. It's like getting a parking ticket. Okay, come on. I'm not a felon. And we can rationalize it. It's not that big of a deal. But truly, church, it is a big deal. That when we compromise in the little and we consider it nothing, it is so much easier to compromise in the greater things. And the devil is just trying to lure you right back to where you used to be before you knew Christ. Now I want to spend more time, and, and actually the next five or so minutes, on this last one. All of my labor and sacrifice in God's kingdom seems to be for nothing. I can't see the fruit. It, it, it must not be worth it to follow Jesus. Why should I sacrifice so much? Now, church, I want you to know I get this one. I have lived there so many times, or at least have been tempted to, and which we're trying to follow Jesus, and it's like, well, that didn't work, and that didn't work, and that didn't work, and before you know it, it's like, is there any success? Come on, have you ever felt that way in which you have given so much to something, and it's like, well, no, that didn't work? Number one, can I just tell you that God defines success very differently than we do? Very differently than we do. And then number two, God never promises that you will see the fruit of your labor. He never promises that. What a wonderful thing when we get to see it. And we get to see the, the whole scope of that. I tell you what, when one of the reasons why I, I don't mind doing paint touch-up so much is because I always get to see what it looks like at the end. I like taking something that's broken and looks ugly and making it look brand new. I like that. I am a detailed person. 
What's hard for me is when I'm crafting and shaping and then I don't get to see the end product. That's hard for me. Like, I, I could never survive in, a, in an assembly line, all right? You do one little thing, and but and the next guy gets to do something else, and the next guy gets to do something else, and then the very last person just puts the crowning touch on it, and look at this, you know, like a car assembly. Oh, my goodness, I got the screw on one bolt. And now at the very end, and, and I don't get to see that. But the truth is, this is how much much of our Christian life is. And we pour into people, or we pour into things, and... and to what end, Lord? And I want to just tell you that even though so much of what you have done will not be fully realized until maybe Jesus comes back or you're gone, you know what? Investing in my children will still be worth it. Even if one holds out till after I die and then comes back to Jesus. Okay? That's going to be discouraging for me. But I am going to fight that. And here's what I'm going to do. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 13. I am going to choose to do what this psalmist did. David is the psalmist. And he just gets down into reality with things. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me? forever how long will you hide your face from me how long must i wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart this is david's confession every day he wrestled with sorrow how long will my enemy triumph over me if it wasn't saul it was the attacking philistine it was his son absalom taking the throne from him and betraying him. Wow. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But, and I want you to underline that word, highlight it, put a, you know, embolden it, do something. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. And here's what I'm going to challenge you. First of all, it says, I trust in your unfailing love. That is that sense of meno, though that word's not found there. That's that sense of holding on to. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust in his unfailing love. It's real. It's not imagined. It's just not written on, you know, black and white in a book. It's real. And I'm going to tell you what, if you're a believer, you have experienced his unfailing love. Maybe some of you have experienced it more than others. I would venture to say I've experienced it more than most of you only because I'm 62 and you're not. The truth is we have, we experience it. We, we know it. We, it's true. I'm going to trust in his unfailing love. So we acknowledge the truth. And we dwell in it, but then he does this. He says, my heart rejoices in your salvation. He rejoices in this truth. And I'm going to just ask you to do this. If, you're, if you just feel like air's been let out of your tires, if you feel just kind of weary tonight, 
If you've been having like a hard week, and I know what really frustrates me is when I do a job and then it rains and I've got to do the job all over again. And now it's harder because it's now it's the clear coat's pitted with rain. And that's what a bear to change, what a bear to take care of. But that happens. And there's just stuff in life when you pour your life into it. It's like, well, guess that didn't work. Are you discouraged tonight? Because you feel like you've given so much, but you just can't see the fruit from that. Here's what I want you to do. You've experienced his love. Even this past week, you've experienced his love. The devil's probably whispering in your ear, contrary to that, because you're so focused on all of these things that didn't go right. What went right? What are some of those successes that when you put your hand to it, wow. How many of you cleaned dishes this past week? They were pretty clean, weren't they? Unless you had a really grumpy attitude and you could care less. No, you probably cleaned them and they shone. All right, and that's the success. I'm talking little things. Father, thank you. You know, this past week, because the business just had a, a very horrible last month, at least beginning, and then God came through and amazingly at the end of the month. And this month, God is blessed tremendously. Thank you, Lord. But on the other hand, the church's finances, it's like, ah, oh, I'm going to thank him for what he has done. Father, thank you for the amount of business that you blessed me with. Thank you for that. You know, and if I can't find enough things in my life, I'm going to say, Lord, thank you for giving May a new job that she gets to start in just like two weeks. And it is awesome. And, you know, it, I, I'm going to rejoice with May in that. And I'm going to look around. And I'm going to start thanking the Lord for how he has blessed each of you. And that gets my eyes off of the struggles, these momentary light struggles. That's how Paul talks about them. They're momentary. They're light. As heavy as your burdens are, Paul is saying they're light compared to the surpassing glory that I am accomplishing in Christ. God is building something in my life, and now there awaits this amazing glory when I get to heaven. Church, I look forward to that. So today, I'm going to get my eyes off of these little failures, these little things that I just get so frustrated about. I'm going to, set my, get, I'm going to take my eyes off of the struggles and the problems. It's, it's not like I'm saying, oh, well, they're just not there. No, they're there, church. In your life, they're there. You're not going to wish them away. They're there. Today, they're there. But I'm not going to focus on them. I'm going to focus on my King Jesus. I'm going to thank him for the fact that he's rescued me. I'm going to thank him for the fact that he's rescued all of my family and, and we're, we're waiting on one. I'm, I'm going to thank him for what an amazing wife that he has given to me. And when I think about my wife, I'm going to start thanking the Lord for all of those things that, about her that just amaze me, that I fell in love with her for. I could choose to focus on the negative, there's negative things in my life that she could complain, probably has complained to the Lord about, okay? But she has learned the secret, and I'm so grateful. She's going to thank the Lord for the, actually the good things in my life. All right. And we do that too. It's a church, we're going to praise him. Even though it's hard and he's crying out to you, Lord, if you don't step in, the enemy is going to say, I've triumphed over him. The devil is just waiting. It's like he's ready to say, yes. I defeated him, or yes, I defeated her. Are you going to let him do that? 
Paul, excuse me, David's remedy is, I'm going to abide in this truth. I'm going to trust in his unfailing love, and I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to find the good, and I'm going to praise God for it. Amen. Can you stand with me? I'm just going to lead us in prayer. I want you right now to allow the Spirit to start bringing things to your mind that you can thank him for. Focus on those things. Thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you, Lord, for this. One after the other, just thanking him. And if you've run out of things to thank him in your life, start thanking him for the things in the other in people around you in their lives. Father, I just want to thank you that you called us out of darkness into your light. You have The sun has truly set us free as we've trusted and believed in you. Father, forgive us when in our weariness, and you so understand, Lord, in our weariness and in our weakness, we have made a choice to focus on the negative, the problems, and we have not been able to count it pure joy when we have faced these trials. When we've looked in the cupboard and they're bare, we have focused on the emptiness rather than the fullness in you, in our hearts. And I just ask you, Lord, tonight, let there be a turn, let there be a change. And I just ask you, Father, that we would embrace truth. We would sing about it. We would declare it. Even as Meredith was just having us declare things, and and when we say amen, we are amening truth. And I just pray, Father, sometimes we just need to get out of our lethargy and our self-pity and stand up and say, God is good. He reigns. He's seated on his throne. Thank you, Father, for all of these good things. You're a good God. You're filled with unfailing love. Unfailing love. That means it never ends. And God, I just pray, may we walk around our house if need be and declare that truth. Father, I ask whatever you need to do in our hearts, get our eyes on you. Because God, this life is all about you, Jesus. Thank you for this, Father. All of the good you have in store for us. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.